Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the J3U Podcast. I am John Jewett, your host, and with me is my co-host, Luke Miller. And today we have an episode that's very pertinent to me because I've been on contest prep for I don't know, two years in this extended lean state. And so eventually I'm going to reach a post-show period. And uh, the man that I really wanted to talk to you was uh, Dr. Eric Trexler, who I have with me today. He's a uh, natural pro bodybuilder and also a a great resource for educating the the bodybuilding community and just physique enhancement community in general. Um, He's the director of education of Stronger by Science author of Mass Research Review, which is a great resource too if you like to be a nerdy bodybuilder like Luke and I, and um, coaches individuals as well. So today we have Eric with us. Welcome Eric, yeah. joining us, appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate the invitation and it's great to, to meet both of you. Yeah, I've uh, been following along for a while and listened to some different podcast episodes that you've done and, of course, all the, the mass re- research reviews that you've done. And um, question for you, do you, do you still currently compete or is that just off the table now? Or? I, I don't call myself retired yet, uh, <laughs> but that might just be because I'm stubborn. Uh, training, like my own training has kind of uh, taken, taken the back seat, kind of put on the back burner. Uh, due to COVID, I was kind of forced out of the gym for a while. And I've just been focusing on a lot of writing, a lot of content, a lot of coaching. So uh, my own training has been kind of sacrificed a little bit in that process. Uh, But I think at some point, I'll I'll be back on the stage. And I am lucky that the federation that I got my pro card in, uh, it they don't like make me compete every two years to keep it or anything like that. So I, I can theoretically step back on the stage uh, whenever I'd like. And I'm holding on to some hope that that'll happen in the future. You know, it'll just be getting the circumstances and the timing right. But, you know, I, I still love to go in and train. I still train like a bodybuilder, uh, still try to keep my body fat within a certain range, within striking distance. So, so yeah, training has been going great. Uh, but for me to get back on stage, I'll have to kick it into, uh, as you know, uh, a much higher gear, you know? Yeah. It's I being in prep for as much as I've been in prep, it's also always limiting in what I can do like education content wise. And it's stuff that I'm excited about to do. Like I can't wait to make more content and, and educate. And so like, there's a passion there, but also for bodybuilding. So it's like, I look forward to an off season where I can do that. But then at the same time, it's like, I know guys that like do an extended off season, then they never make it back to stage because yeah. they're so busy with their business grows. And now it's like impossible to downscale and get back into stage. Not yeah. that's you, Eric, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But- I mean, and it's, it's one of those things. Yeah. I mean, so I got my pro card when I was still working on my PhD uh, and like, we are, we are a really active research group. So like, a lot of people come out of their PhD, maybe they publish three or four papers. That's a very good, respectable, productive time as a, a grad student. I came out with like 35 papers. You know, we were running studies around the clock all the time. Like, I mean, we would come in when everybody else was on vacation and we got there earlier than everyone left the lab later. So there were certain, like, I'm just kind of got used to periodizing my life where I'm like, you know what, I'm running three controlled trials right now. I can't do a prep like that. That's just something that's not like I'll, I'll literally get like fired, you know, like there, no one's going to put up with me doing a prep right now. So I've just kind of been conditioned to kind of have these little compartments. Like where this is a time where training is prioritized. This is a time where I still keep up with it, but other stuff just has to get done first. Uh, so yeah, I, I would like to think that I'll, I'll shift things back over uh, when, when the opportunity presents. And And, you know, I think at least within that and talking about all the research studies you've done, uh, we just did a seminar and I I did it on post-show nutrition and um, and the rebound. And Luke just said, hey, pull up that study that you talked about at at the seminar. I'm like, oh, yeah, 
that was Eric's study. <laughs> it was Trexler's uh, physiological changes following competition, male and female physique athletes. Like that was the study yeah. that I brought up and it's uh, what we wanted to dive in today. So off of all the research you've done around this area and there's a lot of lack of information, I think in this transition period from your contest prep into the off season, what kind of happens in that middle ground. And there's not a lot of resources for athletes, but also from a coaching aspect, a lot of coaches just don't know what to do. Their clients maybe wing it. Um, I, I follow a lot of like the Eric Helms, 3DMJ, what they've done as far as put, promoting like the recovery diet, kind of this middle ground between whether we should be like harnessing this, is there this anabolic rebound where you have this great growth or should we be doing this, this very slow reverse or, or what is this middle ground? So for you today, like to get the discussion, if you could kind of lay out where we're at at the end of a contest prep physiologically and psychologically, that is dictating what we need to do into the post-show period, just to give everyone kind of that framework before we, we move forward. Of course. Yeah. It's interesting. This is a, a time window that I've always been fascinated with. I, I think uh, it's just something that naturally has always piqued my interest. And I've been so surprised that it gets overlooked and forgotten both in the research and, you know, you don't hear a lot of coaches talking about it until fairly recently. You know, I think a lot of people used to always view prep as being such an arduous thing. And they're like, okay, you got to the finish line. It's almost like when you see uh, an Olympic sprinter and they literally dive to the finish line and then they get all bruised and scraped up and everything. It's like, they weren't thinking about the next 10 or 20 meters after the finish line. You know, it's like, just get to the finish line and who cares what happens after uh, but the reality is bodybuilders have to then assimilate back into their normal life and they have to start setting the stage for what their body composition looks like in their off season, which then leads into their next competitive season. So, I mean, you can really trace the next competitive cycle all the way back to that post-show period. So we definitely, I, I think it's, uh, there's no question you want to have some plan as you approach that period, both physiologically and psychologically, you want to know what's going on and you want to, I think the way you put it is great, kind of find that middle ground. So you don't want your post competition window to be as strict as your prep. Uh, Cause like, I mean, you got to give yourself some leniency, give yourself a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, we, we can't crank everything up to prep intensity every day for the rest of our lives. So uh, to set the scene, though, physiologically, psychologically, what's going on is we've just put our body through, uh, from a biological perspective, one of the greatest stresses we could put it under. I mean, there aren't that many things a human being really needs to survive. It's like if you wanted to threaten the core elements of what makes a human being work, it's depriving them of oxygen, water, and food. You know, it's so... Uh, we're doing one, maybe two of those, depending on the types of, uh, the type of, uh, peaking strategies you want to do. I don't recommend major water manipulation. Cause I, I always work with uh, drug-free athletes just cause it's my specialty, nothing against people who compete in other federations whatsoever. But, you know, because I work exclusively with naturals, we don't do a lot of water manipulation, but you know, you're not going to be getting into contest shape without really pushing that food restriction and body fat restriction to a pretty extreme level. And so, uh, it makes sense from a evolutionary biological perspective that we've got some systems in place that when you're really threatening those, that lower boundary of body fat level that is considered healthy and even safe, uh, you're going to be getting some biological feedback. There are going to be some adaptations that happen and they have to, they should. So it's not that they're a bad thing, but it, it they, they work against our preferences as a bodybuilder. So like, as we get into the final stages of prep, our hunger and satiety hormones are definitely leading a certain way, right? They're, they're driving us to eat. Uh, and that is a survival mechanism. You know, if your body senses energy stores are critically low, you're getting all sorts of signals. Hey, have you thought about eating? Like that would be a pretty cool thing for your body, right? So our hunger and satiety signals are completely out of whack. Uh, well, I mean, they're doing what they're supposed to. They're driving us to be hungry and to want to eat. Uh, 
we also have a shift in the balance of anabolic and catabolic hormones as, as we get closer to a prep and then we transition into the off season period. And that also has a very uh, obvious skew. Uh, the body uh, late into prep is in a, a very catabolic state. And a lot of the hormones that we associate with anabolic processes in muscle, uh, you know, testosterone and, and, you know, related metabolites and, or, you know, that the entire kind of androgen uh, grouping of, of testosterone derivatives, those are lower. IGF one is lower. All, all these things that we consider to be generally anabolic and muscle, these hormones are, are depressed in that state. Uh, and I tell you what, talk to a bodybuilder who's gotten blood work done late in prep, a natural bodybuilder. And it is, you look at it, you're just like, man, sorry about that. <laughs> you yeah. like, you look at it, you're like, that's how that you can look at in a, a printout of their blood values and just say, oh, so you're having a terrible time, right? That, that makes sense. So the other thing to consider, you know, our hunger and satiety is leading a very clear direction. Anabolic and catabolic hormones are leading a very clear direction. Uh, the other thing that is leading a very clear direction is our total daily energy expenditure. So the, the best kind of metaphor for it is like when your phone is getting to like below 20% battery and it goes into that energy saver mode. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to stop checking all your background apps all the time. And like, we're just going to do the basic functions to technically cont continue being a functional phone. Your body kind of does that same thing. It goes into energy saver mode. So anything that's not critically essential for life, any way that we can cut some corners and reduce energy expenditure, we're going to do that. So, you know, we see that thyroid hormone levels drop pretty significantly. Uh, we see that even the, down at the mitochondrial level, we start conserving energy. We have less proton leak. Uh, we start to see that non-exercise activities that aren't even volitional. So it's not, you know, a lot of people say, oh, during prep, I get lazy. You know, I, if, if I forgot to check the mail, I say, well, nobody needs me that urgently. I'll check it tomorrow. And some of those volitional things we do kind of subconsciously modify. Maybe we don't walk around and sweep or vacuum or, you know, rake the leaves as much because we're like, ah, I'm, I'm too tired. But there's, there's also non-volitional aspects of energy expenditure that go down. So your hypothalamus has a huge input on the way you use energy throughout the day. So your hypothalamus is getting all these signals that energy expenditure or, or that energy availability is low. And so even things like fidgeting, uh, the way you maintain posture, your body will start taking some shortcuts to reduce the energy that's going into those non-volitional types of movement and non-volitional uh, aspects of muscular tone. And so it sets, uh, it puts us in a situation where we get to the finish line because we can override all that stuff, right? I mean, if you're like really serious about competing, motivation level is high, focus level is high, you can override all that. You can say, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm active. If, if I need to drop calories more, I can, you know, I'm going to push through the, the hormonal stuff, you know, it's temporary. And uh, yeah, the hunger and satiety stuff, you can just kind of, you know, force your way through it and still get through to the finish line for competition. But after competition, we're in this state where, uh, our body is not in a great place when it, you know, we, we still carry forward that really high hunger, that kind of depressed energy expenditure, those suppressed, uh, levels of anabolic hormones. And so now, now the question is, what do we do here? And if, if you just say, well, I'm just going to listen to some of this biofeedback and not have any plan whatsoever, the hunger satiety balance is going to put you into an enormous caloric deficit. Like if you just, or a caloric surplus, if, if you just go into it and say, well, I'm just going to go intuitively and eat until I'm not hungry anymore. I mean, good luck. I, I, I've done it myself before I learned about all these things. And it really is incredible how your desire to eat uh, is just through the roof. So we, we kind of can't rely on that to gradually bring us back to an ideal off-season body composition because we will almost certainly overshoot in most cases. Uh, and so what we have to do then is transition into a period. We, we don't want to maintain this low body fat, low energy intake into the off-season. It's not conducive to uh, a successful long-term bodybuilding career. And it's also psychologically just awful. It's not fun. So we want to get back to a slightly less restrictive lifestyle, slightly less restrictive dietary patterns. We need to ease back into that and figure out how we're going to transition like that without 
you know, overeating due to the hunger and satiety issues without creating an excessively huge caloric surplus because our energy expenditure is lower than anticipated. And with the anabolic and catabolic hormone balance, we also have to make sure, you know, whatever rate of weight gain we're comfortable with, we have to make sure that it's somewhat rooted in reality. We have to say, okay, what is my actual anabolic potential here? Like, best case scenario, how much muscle or lean tissue could I even hope to gain over the next eight weeks? And you have to factor that into the rate of weight gain that you select in this post-competition period. Uh, and the final aspect, like I said, is psychological because I mentioned hunger and desire to eat as if they were coupled, but they do tend to get a little bit uncoupled in the post-competition period. This is anecdotal, by the way. I'm kind of deviating from the, the objective kind of hard science here, but I've noticed for myself and for a lot of competitors I've talked with, people I've coached, after the competition period, yes, hunger is through the roof, but even after you do achieve satiety uh, in a, you know, with a given meal or over the course of a day, you'll find that you still have this heightened desire to eat because of the you know, because of the psychological dietary restriction aspect of a long prep. So you bet you've been in prep forever. And I mean, when some people do an extended prep or a really aggressive prep, they start thinking, oh, when I'm done with this prep, I'm going to eat this and that. And the other thing, you must have like a to-do list when it comes to the things that you want to eat. And that is kind of uncoupled from your hunger. So eating to hunger or eating to fullness, I should say, is still probably going to put us in a spot where we're overshooting the amount of lead, ma lead mass we could possibly hope to gain by a, a wide margin, um, which isn't, you know, we want to gain some fat, but we have to be thoughtful of how much, but even beyond the hunger and satiety, there's that psychological desire to eat that's driven by that restrictive uh, process. So that's basically the problem statement. And then the solutions kind of uh, carry over from there. Yeah. I think everyone that has been through a prep has hit by some type of adaptation along the way that they can actually connect with, which within prep we're seeing just like all the things like maybe you don't have your hormone panel done but you experience some of those feelings that you're arriving at but um, most people have usually some type of sleep disturbance within prep which it's uh driven a lot by hormones or it could be driven just by hunger waking you up but hey stupid get up you need to eat some food we're starving <laughs> uh, yeah and th there is good evidence that hormones associated with hunger do have, have a direct, uh, they, they do directly impact sleep quality, the ability to maintain high quality sleep. And that's again, a really natural biological process where it, you can imagine if you're an animal, uh, who doesn't have a grocery store, you know, who has to go out and hunt for their own food. Uh, if energy stores are low, you're better off going out and foraging for food or hunting rather than sleeping. And so there is a direct link between these hunger and satiety hormones and sleep. Yeah. And, and, and so I think you experience most people that's at least been mine um, or some type of GI disturbance. There's slowing in GI motility, slower in, in erectile function. You don't have as many balance. Of course you have less food volume as well. Um, the down regulation on all the anabolic hormones and increase in catabolic hormones, I think it paints a pretty clear picture that at the end of a prep, you're not in a great position to build muscle. And why would it be one day later post-show that all of a sudden I have this greatest ability to, to build muscle? And I, I think that's something to, to pull out before to kind of, you know, break down that myth of this, this anabolic post-show period. <clears throat> because really just painting the picture of what we all have said, it's you're kind of in your worst state to build muscle. If you have poor sleep, which is your best recovery tool, you have low anabolic hormones and catabolic hormones. It's not just a flip, a switch that flips over. A lot of these hormones take weeks to months to actually get back into that normal range of productive off-season time. I, I know we, you know, Luke and I, we focus with an enhanced crowd, but the same things apply to what you take about for, for uh, naturals. Because a lot of guys are going to say, well, I replace all these hormones, John. Like, it's okay. And it's still like all the other factors are still there that are going to have you in a less optimal state to build. So what we see like in the enhanced community is a lot of guys will like post-show, they, they ramp up and, you know, androgens, 
to try to offset this state to partition more towards muscle and less to fat gain. But the amount you have to do that by in this suboptimal state is very vast. And so you can easily take yourself from a prep, which had a lot of stress accumulation, your you know, lab work's already skewed, and to enter into a state with high androgens again, uh, it, it just to offset some of this, it makes a lot of sense to you that you're still not in the best state to build muscle and that we should still focus even in the enhanced community on a recovery period. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I should mention, you know, the reason that I kind of put out that caveat that most of what I'm saying is based on natural lifters, anecdotes and, uh, data from natural lifters is, uh, like I said, I totally support the enhanced bodybuilding community. No issue with enhanced bodybuilding at all. I think that's actually what got me interested in the sport was following the IFBB guys back in the day, you know? So the reason I bring that up is just to be really clear that my anecdotes as a coach are coming from a unique perspective that is, is not fully comprehensive. You know, I haven't observed that time over time in enhanced lifters and when I talk about what we can get from the research literature, it's almost exclusively in natural uh, bodybuilders. We, we don't have a lot of this biological data. A lot, there's a lot of research in enhanced lifters, but it focuses more on the psychological aspects of the sport um, for whatever reason. I just clear, you know, working in research, one of the biggest things that, one of the biggest mistakes that good researchers make is they overgeneralize. They take research from this population and apply it to that population without even acknowledging, hey, we've kind of pulled this over and we might have to, you know, really carefully think about how much it relates. And I agree with you that it does relate, um, you know, to, to a big extent. It's, you know, the, the question is a, a question of magnitude and context rather than if it's there. So yeah. without question, you know, my little glimpse into the enhanced side of the sport, I still see these things, the sleep disruption, the, uh, you know, a little bit of a lag time, but before we can really get into a highly anabolic environment after physiological environment, after competition. Uh, and really, I think whether you're natural or enhanced, you know, our two best friends in that post-competition period are going to be gaining a sensible amount of body fat relative to your goal. Uh, and getting into a caloric surplus. And, and those two key elements, uh, really what we're trying to do is titrate those, how much body fat, how quickly, and that's intrinsically tied to what's the size of our caloric surplus there. Uh, so yeah, enhanced natural, th those are still the two key elements that we really have to manage in that post-competition period. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things too is like maybe objectively quantifying it as like a time to take care of the net stress accumulated for the individual and like both sides are going to have the psychological stress and then like on the enhanced side we're adding a elevated androgen dose toxic environment right in which that needs to be taken care of post show before we're probably in a state of like fatigue drop that sets up an optimal growing environment right and like from a data perspective like there's plenty of case studies on natural bodybuilders that actually walk you through like the hormonal profiles of these right like there's plenty of them out there like i think there's even one uh that they do pre and post like recovery i believe it's like a 2013 paper with i think i know lineke's on it i don't know who the head author is probably but, rosso yeah i think it's rosso yeah. like a 13 14 study so we can take that information and understand like hey the stress state that we're in post show needs to be addressed before we drive the signaling for anabolic adaptation yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, a lot of the enhanced communities, they won't, they'll dismiss some of the research and natural studies or, or information from natural saying, well, that's not me. But I think it's a great aspect to pull from because we're, we're not masking any effects with drugs. And I think that happens so often. So you have a community of naturals where they, you can actually see the effects versus like when they're in a productive off season versus when they're in a post show period. Well, that those are, we're still humans and we still have the similar physiology. So those states might just be in a lesser degree, but they're still there. And so I, right. I bring that up just to kind of paint that, that uh, natural and looking at them and what's being applied still crosses over to probably what's close to an optimal framework for us to work within. We just have these other tools to kind of, 
offset and shift that around. Um, but this, I didn't want this conversation to go like natural versus enhanced by any means. Uh, so, so this reel, reeling it back, I guess, um, into this, this post-show period and talking about, hey, a, a lot of this is being driven by energy availability, right? So we have low body fat, high energy output, low energy intake. And, and this is a lot of this, the situation that's there to drive a lot of this. So the, 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 the things we need to do post-show to recover it, it's it's not simple, but it's pretty much we want to be gaining some amount of body fat to reverse that process. And you bring up the rate. And so this is gets um, a, a little bit tougher to paint of like what rate to go at and where to, where to go from. And so I think a lot of it we'll have to discuss on what your body fat kind of set, set a point in the off season where you're comfortable at. Uh, where you have to go down to for your division. So if you're a bodybuilder and need shredded glutes or if you're a bikini competitor, that's a different state than everyone. So this doesn't apply across the spectrum that everyone's going to be in this horrible state at, at that show. Um, we have the genetic freaks, right, that just are very, very lean. Maybe they, they don't feel any of this. Yeah. Um, and then on the opposite end, coming back up, where do we need to take that to? So um, I know that... Yeah. That was a lot of. No, I mean, I, I think you, you raise a good point, which is uh, the way that I like to do it. So a lot of times people say, you know, we talk about rate of weight gain or rate of fat gain after a competition. And people just want a number, you know, pounds per week or percent of body fat per week or percent of body weight per week. And I don't think that that's actually the best way to do it when you're talking about a competitor because of the considerations you brought up. I mean, what kind of state are you in after this show? Depending on your division, that might vary and depending on your genetics. And a really good question, and in my opinion, this is the starting point, forecast into the start of your next prep. So not the end of your next prep, but the start of your next prep. Where do you want to be at that point? So how much do you weigh? What is your body fat percentage? How much more muscle are you carrying at the end of this bulking or this off season and before your next prep begins? Start there and kind of trace the path back to where you are at the end of this competition. So what I'm getting at is a seamless transition into that next endpoint. And so what we don't want to do is say, okay, uh, when I start my next prep, I want to be 220 at 16% body fat or whatever the case may be. Well, we probably don't want to start by immediately gaining all the fat mass that would get us there and then say, okay, then maybe we'll just kind of have this slow, almost negligible upward trajectory, maybe even have to focus on recomposition, gaining and losing, you know, gaining muscle, losing fat at the same time in order to get there. It's not going to be a particularly, particularly effective or efficient way to get there. What we want to do is kind of say, let's look at our fat mass component and our lean mass component and kind of get both of those trending upward over time with a trajectory that's going to bring us there in an efficient way so that we don't have to do, you know, really, you know, we don't want to get into a situation where every time we start really getting momentum with our muscle gain, we say, you know what, I'm going to have to put on the brakes and go do a cutting phase because I'm getting way too far from stage shape. You know, that's what we want to avoid. In my opinion, we want to have a nice clean trajectory and that can include, you know, multiple bulking and cutting cycles along the way. There's nothing wrong with that, but we want to make sure that we're not getting forced into unanticipated cuts because we're like, okay, we keep getting, we keep letting it get away from us. We keep gaining way too much fat relative to the lean mass that we're gaining. So what I encourage people to do is find where we're trying to get and try to forecast out that trajectory back to where we are today. Uh, and also consider a few key elements. Uh, you know, so you mentioned Helms has talked a lot about recovery diets and kind of the other, there's kind of a spectrum, right? So back in the day, everybody was like, after a show, you are just primed for muscle growth. So eat everything you can and lift as much as you can. And you're just going to grow untold amounts of muscle rapidly. That's one end of the spectrum, which I disagree with. Another end of the spectrum is this like ultra precise reverse dieting approach where it's like, what if I stay in contest shape, but just triple my calories through this like really tedious process? Uh, 
I don't think it's doable for most people. And even if it is doable, you find that a lot of what you're experiencing after the show, if you're able to maintain that body fat, none of it actually gets better. You're just still hungry and cold and tired, uh, but you eat 3,500 calories a day instead of 2,100. Uh, that rarely do people actually get there, but when they do, they say, yeah, I still feel terrible because they didn't regain any of the fat. They haven't gotten back closer to their settling point where they feel comfortable. So a recovery diet is kind of in that middle ground, right? Where we're saying, let's allow some fat gain early in the process, but let's make sure that it is uh, proportional to the amount of lean mass that we're gaining. Let's make sure we're gaining both in unison not you know blowing up and gaining a ton of fat early and then saying okay let's try to catch up and build muscle later so you want to find yourself somewhere in this middle ground between these two extremes based on you know the evidence and the anecdotes that we have and when you're trying to figure out should i go a little bit on the faster side of the spectrum or the slower side when it comes to the rate of weight gain and the rate of fat gain you have to think about a few things. So first of all, how bad a shape are you in? And not literally, but how bad are you feeling? You know, like if you have, if th those endocrine side effects that you mentioned, even if you're not getting a blood panel done, you can tell. Yeah. If my thyroid hor hormone is low, I know it. If my test is low, I know it. Uh, so if you're just really in rough shape after your prep, you pushed really hard, maybe you even over dieted a little bit, you might need to kind of speed up that recovery process a little bit. Another question is, how much muscle do you actually stand to gain? You know, so uh, if you're top 10 in the world, are you really going to gain 40 pounds of muscle in your off season? Probably not, right? I mean, it, but if you are, you just did your first show to get some experience, you had a fun time, and, and now you're like, okay, I want to start taking this seriously, you might have a hell of an off season ahead of you. You might, you might still have, you might still be so far from your genetic potential that you can have these ultra productive off seasons that involve a tremendous amount of lean mass gain. And so at that point, time is of the essence. You know, if you still have a lot of ground to cover before you start reaching your kind of peak level of muscularity or your goal level of muscularity, do not waste your time clinging to this super low body fat in an off season, get the muscle and it will pay off in a big way. That, that's an investment. So if you're not, but you know, the other side of the coin is, you're almost at your genetic limit. You have about as much muscle as you're ever going to get. You're talking about gaining tenths of pounds of muscle, you know, not, you know, 10 or 20 pounds of muscle. When you're in that situation, you don't stand to gain much from a super aggressive off season. All it's going to be doing is bringing you further from the body fat level you need to achieve on stage. So it kind of sets the scene for whether or not you should be going fast or slow. So again, how bad are we feeling here physiologically? How bad are, or how far are we from our muscular potential? Um, and, you know, the other aspect that I think is critical is psychologically, how are we feeling? If you just got through a prep and you're like, dude, I'm so done with dieting and bodybuilding in general, like I might hang it up at that point. It's like, don't, don't try to force it. You know, let, let's try to find that middle ground where we have some flexibility, but middle ground, right? So not completely falling off the wagon and saying like, okay, I'm going to, you know, just completely lose touch with my diet and my training, but find that middle ground where you say, let's allow some flexibility, open up some space here where we can maybe not have our entire life focused around the gym and nutrition, but we can still make some positive steps that set us up for a good off season. And, uh, I, I think, uh, not to get philosophical, but in my free time these days, all I do is read about secular Buddhism. And uh, one of the key concepts there is the middle path, uh, which is not being overly restrictive, not being overly indulgent, but just kind of finding that middle path that's comfortable. Uh, and, and I think from a bodybuilding perspective, finding that middle path uh, in the post-competition period and the off-season is a prudent way to approach it. We want to make sure that we are not clinging to contest shape because I've, I've never seen a, a really there might be some out there. I might be short-sighted here. I don't think, I can't recall a bodybuilder who really excelled in the sport, who just stayed permanently in contest shape in the bodybuilding division year round. I mean, it's not just that it's uh, psychologically unfeasible for a lot of people. It's not just that physiologically there are major downsides, but even if you are purely looking at it from a competitive perspective, I still think finding that middle path is going to be the best route. 
No, I, I agree. And I think a lot of people get some skewed perceptions with social media and also looking too much towards top level bodybuilders and that stay relatively lean now, but they've already reached a state where they maybe no longer need to add more muscle tissue on so they can hold a lower body fat level because they don't need to reach into that, that, that point of, of building anymore. So it, it doesn't, uh, it, it, for, for a beginner or someone, that's not how we'd want to program. And, uh, and also social media is, is very skewed. So um, I think more people want to stay leaner, but you're also, those are the guys, look who's making progress over time and see what they're doing. And that, that's what I would, you know, put, put weight in. But uh, I, I think you, you brought up some great points, Eric, on, you know, assessing someone of where they're at and all this, everything that we do within physique sport, it's always needs based, right? What does that individual need? And leading into that post-show time where the competition's happening, like those are some similar questions that I like to ask people, especially in the post-show period is uh, how, how is your sleep quality? How is your daily energy? Do you feel brain fog or able lack of ability to concentrate? How is your libido? People might be uncomfortable asking those things, but uh, it's a pertinent thing for hormone recovery and overall how you and, feel. Yeah, and um, menstrual cycle regularity as well for, for uh, female competitors sometimes. Has, has menses returned or any type of spotting or anything like that? Then how is bowel function is another one too. Uh, then of course, hunger sick. Uh, how, how it, and I think if you look at all the, these aspects and questions that are deranged on prep, that probably gives you an idea of when you're probably recovered post prep too, when you have removed all these things. And for someone that's never gone through that, maybe they don't have the data to look back on. Cause, cause we do, we, I've been competing for years. So I know in the off season when, what body fat that I need to be at to where I'm really comfortable. And that's yeah. uh, probably where I'm trying to shoot maybe in that initial spot post show and then build within this range of, of body fat level that's productive, but not getting me so far beyond to where I can't pull it back down to contest shape. Yeah. So I, I think looking at your past um, off season, maybe, maybe we're like where that body fat is. Maybe also thinking about maybe I got too high in body fat and it took me too long to diet. And that kind of perturbated a lot of the last bits and weeks of prep where I had to dig crazy hard and get a lot of further adaptations. Um, so I, I think that that kind of like helps with, seeing where you're at and where you need to go to body fat wise. But yeah. the important one I think is the, the, with anything programming and nutrition is adherence and sustainability. And that should probably drive how we program for someone. So yeah. if that's one that just can't stay in the diet. Well, that's kind of a shitty diet. You just have to increase food more, a little bit more aggressively. And that might mean a greater fat gain the first week or two, but then those signals might drop off a little faster um, with that being said, what, what strategies have you utilized to help with someone being adherent in that phase? Cause I think this is the biggest struggle for all of us. Even, even when I have like an aggressive surplus and maybe that you're like, okay, this rate of thacking looks pretty good. Um, but they're still struggling hard to stay on plan. Have you come across any strategies that, that help with, within that hunger, hunger management? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think anecdotally, a lot of coaches think that uh, there is a problem and the solution is to throw calories at the problem. And if the problem persists, you have to throw more calories at the problem, right? It's like this kind of, uh, this this totally uh, short-sighted kind of single solution approach to it that, that really isn't advisable. And what you'll find with that particular approach is that it's kind of like, if you've got any friends that are just like kind of perpetually overspending money and you're like, dude, there's no income you could possibly make that you wouldn't outspend, you know, like it, it's, and, and after a competition, I mean, it's, it's clear why we have that kind of drive to just like, dude, no matter how many calories you throw at me, I'm going to be hungry. My desire to eat is going to be super high. Like it's, I don't want to downplay. It's totally relatable, totally understandable, but as a coach, or if you're doing your own coaching for your, your own diet, you know, we have to get creative about thinking through what is driving this desire to eat. You know, if we've got the, the rate of fat gain going where we want it and we've got a, a surplus that's appropriate and we're, you know, making uh, really prudent progress toward a sustainable off-season body fat, 
Then the question comes down to what's driving the desire to eat. And I think that can only be really, you can only really troubleshoot that via conversation. If you're working with a client and say, uh, you know, I know that some people don't embrace these particular tactics much in the, the competitive bodybuilding world, just because it's a really intense kind of hardcore sport. And so we don't like to get in touch with our feelings. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, here's the plan, just do it. And if you don't like it, try to not dislike it and just keep doing it. But I think sometimes it is helpful to kind of borrow some strategies from like the mindful eating crowd. And just like when you're about to eat, think through, am I eating because I'm hungry? Am I eating because I'm stressed? Am I eating because I'm bored? Am I eating for purely hedonic reasons? Uh, and, you know, you, you can start getting a sense of what I'm about to eat, what's going through my head. When I'm done eating, what's going through my head? When I get an urge to go snack and kind of deviate from my plan, what's going through my head? I think that's really the only observation. Well, I wouldn't say only, but those are key observations that can help us put together a plan. So we could say, okay, so we look through all this information and like, dude, you're eating for purely hedonic reasons. And so you might find that paradoxically, the way to, uh, to kind of push against that is say, well, you're eating like 95% of your prescribed calories from these nutrient dense whole foods with low palatability. Uh, and then you're saying, right, but where's all the fun stuff? And that's what's causing you to overeat. So what if we try to actually build more of those palatable foods into the base of your diet without sacrificing enough fiber, enough protein, enough vitamins, and minerals? So that's one way you could approach it and see how it works. But Another way you could approach it is you could say like, dude, you're eating for purely hedonic reasons and your, your diet is like a multivitamin and ice cream. Like you are going way too flexible with your flexible dining. All of your food sources are hyper, hyper palatable. And it's almost like for some people, if you say, no, let's get away from this hyper palatable stuff. Let's go plain meat and potatoes and vegetables and like Sometimes uh, there are, there's even rodent studies. So this isn't even just like a psychological aspect of the human condition. But if you take a calorie deprived rodent and give it normal chow, it'll overeat a little bit. If you take a calorie deprived rodent and give it really tasty, high fat chow, uh, and it's not to say that it's literally fat for a human application. That's just what the mice seem to really like is this like kind of extra fat chow. Uh, they go crazy. They way overeat because that combination of usually calorie deprivi deprivation plus stress plus hyper palatable chow, rodents go crazy overeating this stuff. And so for some people, the strategy is let's incorporate more palatable, really tasty foods. For other people, it's like, hey, we're not really handling these hyper palatable, tasty foods very well. So let's leave those for a couple months down the road and get back to basics, some plain foods. And the benefit there is when you're eating super plain food, uh, it's not a tragedy when the meal ends, right? But when you're eating something that's really good and you're just like, dude, I can't believe I have to stop eating now. This was so good. Mm -hmm. So I think getting in touch with the root cause of the overeating or the lack of adherence or the deviation is critical. And so that series of examples was just coming down to palatability and hedonic eating. But you might also find that people are eating because they're super stressed out and you can find ways to, to manage the plan to reduce psychogenic stress related to training and nutrition. You might find people are eating because you're bored and you're like, dude, here's a book recommendation. <laughs> when you're bored, read the book. Like, you know, so, but getting into why we're overeating or why we're failing to have adherence is, it's got to be the first step, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And just like you get back, it needs analysis, right? So don't just throw your XYZ, here's your hunger management solution and eat, just eat more vegetables. And that's it. It's like, well, that might yeah. not be the solution if that's not, you know, not the, the starting problem. Yeah. And, and as a coach, I mean, that's what gets me most excited uh, is, you know, like as like a, as like a scientist, you're like, okay, well, the problem is either calories or satiety. So we can either eat more calories or eat more broccoli. Right. And like, that's kind of boring, but uh, as we know from, you know, application and uh, experience, it's, there's so much more to that when it comes to the behavioral aspects of eating. And so we can intervene and get creative with solutions and say, your specific adherence issue uh, is not simply a more calories or more fiber problem. We need to get 
more specific about the way you're eating, your eating behavior and your food selection. We actually talked about this in the seminar about not only considering like the nutritional desire too, right? Like there's some association with training there as well. Like how many times have you seen like the person dread the off day because the off day calories are less than the training day or they don't have that two hour activity to go do. So now they're yeah. dropping that boredom signaling eating, right? Yeah. Like that, that's my wife to a T, right? So it's like, how can we get that person in a state where, okay, maybe they're training a little bit more frequently so that they have that activity and we're not driving that signaling and associating those needs analysis together where we're not only doing the needs analysis with nutrition, we're doing it in the psychological proclivity of the client, but we're doing the training alongside that so that they kind of meet and create the best situation circumstances. Right. I, I think Eric too, like, you know, the, the mindfulness is something that just lacks so much within our community, especially in prep, because you have a weighed out meal, you eat that meal, and you don't really need to think about it. That's just what you do. You don't think about how do I feel prior to this meal while I'm eating this meal and what do I feel after? And those are n normal hunger signaling, satiation cueing that you should be having present, which we kind of detrain ourselves to, but then you're also very skewed post-show to have you know, accurate assessments of those things, but it's things that we should be reintegrating and thinking about to get back to a normal psychological state, but it's gonna help with achieving the physiological state as well. So I think, you know, I, I like to have people journal at the end of the day. So if they did go out and go off plan and, and ate some foods off, like journal down, like how'd you feel like before or having those foods, like what drove that, like you said, and yeah. how did you feel afterwards? Like, did, did it, that was, was that the solution to what the, the, your issue was before? And I think that can drive like where you want to take that to, but also if you start picking up those feelings and realizing them ahead, then you can swerve your actions away. Um, yeah. And it, it can be hard, like I said, for like really hardcore bodybuilders to get buy-in and like, Hey, at the end of the night, sit down and journal through these things or before you're eating a meal, really trying to be mindful of, how you're feeling going into that meal, but it's really ironic. And if you're a coach and you're like, how am I going to sell this to like, you know, my, my tough bodybuilder types who, who think that's silly. I mean, what could be a better bodybuilding strategy than actually solving your problems and finding solutions? Like if, if becoming a better, a better bodybuilder is not the priority of a hardcore bodybuilder, I don't know what is, you know, so it, you have to kind of help your clients realize that, this is a, a key process uh, that's going to correspond directly to finding strategies that work and ultimately becoming a better competitor. I think as a front, many people like to put out that they're the hardcore bodybuilder, but just the reality that everyone's facing is this conversation. And even if you coach people, you know, like 90% of the people that we do coach have this exact problem. So say like, oh yeah, no, we're just hardcore bodybuilders. We stick to the plan no matter what. Well, you're, you're making your plan like very miserable to be on. I think we can enjoy the process a lot more and have a longer career. And, 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 you know, if you're putting that on someone that's new, it's like, man, you might, you might pull them out of ever wanting to compete again. You make it so miserable. I wanted to touch on something you, you, you brought up about, um, the, the the exercise component Luke and um, you know having that lack of activity maybe it's out of boredom and there was a a paper that I had looked through on dieting in a high energy flux state versus a low energy flux state and this high energy flux state basically if you have the same surplus or deficit for that matter is it better on appetite and, and satiety doing it a high activity and eating a lot of food or doing low activity, eating low food. And the, the, the group that was had more activity level, but was able to eat more food actually had a, an improved ability to control um, hunger. And uh, if that could be a maybe potential strategy in the post-show period is, is making sure people stay up in activity level not, not through like fatigue driven exercise, but just active. So if we need more yeah. off days, maybe it's like, Hey, let's go do something fun that keeps us active and not be bored. Um, but uh, yeah. I don't know if you've correlated any of that post show, if maybe you drive up activity level, they're able to eat some more food, not, not to, uh, you know, to drive like uh, offset the deficit by any means, but if it does actually have some type of benefit for maybe appetite or, or hunger in general. Yeah, there, there is some evidence of that. Um, 
if memory serves, uh, that was in kind of a general population, like it wasn't in like athletes. So there is some evidence, like you said, that that, that high flux state, even if the total, uh, you know, total, uh, you know, energy balance is pretty similar, that, that there are some benefits of being in that, you know, increase your expenditure to increase intake, just have a higher state of flux that that can be positive. Uh, and it is a strategy that can be actionable working with athletes. One of the questions I have though, is when applying that to bodybuilders, are we with those types of things, there's generally some degree of a threshold, right? Where we, we yeah. get the benefit and then there's diminishing returns beyond that. So I do wonder for someone who's training four or five, six times a week, if we've already kind of exploited that particular aspect of physiology to a maximal degree or a near maximal degree, but I genuinely do not know, you know, so it, it's not to yeah. say, uh, it's not like, Oh, I don't know. I don't think that'll work. It's saying, I just don't know how well we can generalize that to a population that's already on kind of the higher end of the exercise spectrum. Um, but I will say that non-exercise activity, just fit general physical activity that is like fun and not like, you know, Hey, go, you know, chain yourself to the treadmill for an hour or, you know, go do more weight training, like right. the stuff that's fun, you know, get out, walk on a trail, walk with your family, go kayaking, just do, do some fun stuff. Uh, that can be a really helpful thing later in prep, because like I said, non-exercise activity, total daily energy expenditure does go down because of some of those hypothalamic, uh, things we discussed previously, uh, some of those natural adaptations to a low energy state. So, keeping non-exercise activity or, or at least unstructured exercise activity high can be really helpful there. And absolutely it can be helpful in the competition period. Exercise activity is still depressed to some extent. And what's really interesting is if you look at, there's like this big registry of people who have successfully lost and maintained weight loss for a long period of time. One of the key characteristics of people who are successful weight loss maintainers is that they have a high activity level. They have this high state of energy flux. So there's ample evidence to say this seems to correlate with good things. And so I, I always acknowledge the caveat that we don't know exactly how well, how well that will generalize to avid exercisers, but there is, as long as it's not cutting into recovery, there is no clear downside to doing it. And uh, there is potential for upside. So I do think it's a tool that a bodybuilding coach can absolutely utilize and, and can utilize very effectively. The only possible downside would be if you have some of those clients who feel like they're just like a hamster on a wheel. If you're like, I need you to be always moving. And they're like, dude, this is stressing me out. Like, this is no way for me to live. Uh, there are going to be some clients who dislike a certain threat, like a certain amount a magnitude of kind of feeling like they have to constantly be active. But if you can thread that needle, and say, hey, let's go get out and do some fun things, especially on an off day. Let's take our 90 minutes that we would have been training and do something else that's physically active. Uh, I, I think that's a terrific strategy. Yeah, I think one is, is the, also the other extreme where it could be an issue is people are over-exercising to just to be able to eat more. Like, yeah. you know, we'll run for pizza or something, you know? Yeah, like, bad uh, cycle. To where like, oh, I, I, I ate a pizza last night, but it's okay. I did two hours on the Stairmaster the next day. It's like, well, that's kind of getting into a psychological issue of, of like almost binge restrict or binge yeah. then over exercise. Um, and we have clients that would do stuff like that, you know, to where, oh, yeah. I can exercise more and eat more. Perfect. I'm going to exercise extreme. Then you're, you're getting into like, well, now we're, we're getting away from what we're trying to achieve here. Um, with recovering psychologically and physiologically and not generating so much fatigue where we can't accumulate good quality lean tissue like we, we want. So there's a, yeah. there's definitely a balance, like you said, to strike within that. And, and for a lot of guys that, or girls, if we already have a high energy component, we might not be able to pull that much, but maybe it's something to look at. If you have someone that's a very sedentary individual and maybe they came from a high knee, we're counting steps, then on then your prep's over. And it's like, oh, finally, I can sit here at the computer all day. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you might offset that um, th that energy intake so much or, or so little that you gain like a huge amount of body fat. So maybe keep people, you know, so active, but also the stress component you brought up too. I think that's a huge driver because 
Um, just anecdotally too, like if I have a poor night's sleep, I'm usually driven more the next day to like want more palatable foods. Yeah. Maybe that's a driver just like sleep is a great recovery tool. So it's like, well, what else can you do for recovery? Let's try to eat a little bit more. Um, So I think, you know, for the competitor post-show, making sure that we are addressing sleep routine, because I know a lot of people on prep, they're so regimented, right? Eventually, hopefully. Um, Then post-show, it's like, oh, finally, we have freedom. We don't have to adhere to all these things. But then sleep routine gets off. That can drive up hunger as well. Um, And then, of course, you might go back. You had a I have people that take like the week off before their show and it's like, Oh, stress is low. Then they jump back into like this heavy workload, stress is high, sleep's poor. And it kind of, you know, attenuates uh, the, the issue. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, I think the stress management is, is a, a big aspect as well. For sure. Yeah. It, it's sleep in the post recovery period, just like prep critically important. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me as, as this conversation has progressed is, you know, I started out just as like a pure scientist. Like I, I wasn't doing coaching. I would just be a scientist and compete myself. And I've noticed that the more that I've gotten to coaching and putting out more content that is, you know, science-based, but for non-scientists, uh, I just can't give a damn straight answer anymore. You know, you start to see it, it's like, you know, so, hey, is this a good strategy? And I say, well, uh, it works for these folks might backfire for these folks might have a neutral effect for those folks. You know, it, it's a really nice thing that, uh, like I said, as coaches, it's exciting to know that we have all these different tools, but we have to use them effectively. We have to use them in a really judicious manner where we say with everything I know about you as an individual, is this going to feed into some of your worst psychological, uh, kind of traits, the things that you're trying to kick? Or is this going to be right in your wheelhouse and be something that is perfectly compatible with your mindset and your lifestyle? And it's not always going to be the same for everybody, but you know, it it starts with having the key principles, right? So in this post-competition period, what are our problems? Might not be sleeping well. Uh, Our fat is too low. Our body fat is too low. Uh, We're in an energy deficit coming out of, at least during the prep. You know, the, the problem statement is clear and where we need to get is clear. And then the actual implementation strategies, there are a lot of different ways to do it. But as long as you're still following those core principles and leading in the right direction, it'll work out and it'll be an effective way to do it. No, and actually, I think that's a, a great summary to kind of ending where we're at for this post-show period. Um, it just like with, within all what we're doing is coaching. It, it starts with an assessment of where you're currently at looking at where we're trying to get to and then paint painting the connecting the dots basically from that point. And it's not always just the straight path for everyone. We have some other paths that we might have to take to get back onto our main road. But uh, just like if you, like I tell people, like if you go to the doctor and you tell him your problem, he just doesn't throw a solution at you, right? He's looking and making an assessment subjectively, looking at your lab work, and, and then, then from there, he has, he knows where he wants to go and he starts with an approach and then reevaluate and re- rinse and repeat. So as coaching, it's kind of the same, the same thought process for us, but you know, Eric, I, I uh, really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us on post-show because it is this kind of murky area. And I think it's just, it's probably always murky, like you said, because it's not, there's never clear cut answers and it's always very individual. So I think we can paint kind of a framework to work within. Um, and what we'll probably never nail down on like, do it this way. <laughs> Cause it's never going to be like, what's exactly right for each individual. But um, yeah. please, please uh, tell us where we can find and follow you or, or follow more of your information at. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, I really appreciate the invitation. This was a, a really nice discussion. Uh, if people want to find me or get in touch with me, uh, you can find me at strongerbyscience.com. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Trexler Fitness. And if you want to get more information about this specific set of topics, contest preparation, and then the recovery, I do have a free article that I wrote a couple of years ago at strongerbyscience.com slash metabolic adaptation. Uh, and I talk about how these adaptations occur during prep and also how we can thoughtfully kind of recover from that prep and what kind of timeline we can expect uh, to get back in, kind of make a seamless transition into 
the next off season. So if you want a little more information on the topic, that's a good place to find it. And for anyone listening, I'll link that below in the show notes so they can have access to that article and also um, look at your Stronger by Science, Mass, and then um, also your your IG handle. So we'll we'll include all of that. Um, So anyway, that is J3U podcast for the day, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Always appreciated. If you're on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe. Until next time, we'll see you then.